New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. We are on a vital threshold in human history. While our fragmented perspective of the world has brought us and our planet to the edge of catastrophic breakdown, the newly emerging holistic perception of the cosmic hologram and the essential unity of consciousness offers us a choice for the transformational breakthrough. We're beginning to accept the scientific and spiritual theory that everything in our perfect universe is connected. Our guest today says everything we call physical reality is literally made up of information. That statement leads us to inquire, what implications does this have for us in our everyday lives? We'll be exploring this question and more with our guest, Dr. Jude Curavan. Jude Curavan is a cosmologist, planetary healer, and futurist. She has a master's degree in physics from Oxford University and a doctorate in archaeology. She's traveled the world and worked with wisdom keepers from many traditions and continues to pursue her lifelong passion in researching the nature of reality. She's the author of many books, including The Cosmic Hologram, Information at the Center of Creation. Join us for the next hour as we explore the nature of reality and the theory of informational physics with our guest, Dr. Jude Curavan. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Jude, welcome. Thank you, Justine. It's absolutely delightful to be with you. Oh, it's my delight as well. Wow, wow. What a book. What, what, what a research you have <laughs> gathered together in both spirit and science, in the spiritual realm and the science and bringing biology and all of it together. My goodness, uh, it, it's a deep dive into the nature of reality as I've gone through your, your work here. And I'd, I would love for you to give us a little bit of a background going back to when you were at Oxford. And I remember reading about your being part of a discussion, a group discussion with the very, very famous physicists, uh, Stephen Hawking mm -hmm. and Roger Penrose. And you were out of that that discussion, you were asked to write a paper. Mm -hmm. So can you can you give us a little bit of an overview and flavor of that? I'd be delighted to. It was back in the early 70s and I was an undergraduate. I was, I think, 19 years old at the time. And there was a wonderful teacher called Dennis Sharma who'd been Stephen Hawking's mentor. 
and he became my mentor. Um, and the black holes then, they'd been a sort of theoretical prediction of general relativity, but it was the time when it was being realised that they could actually be real phenomena. And so it was very exciting. So Stephen came to uh, Oxford to give a postgraduate seminar, but I, uh, thanks to Dennis, Dennis invited me to be the youngest person in the room, essentially. And it was fascinating. And it just felt there was a rightness about what was being talked about. And I didn't realise it at the time, just how important black holes were going to be in our deeper understanding of our universe. And so in a way, you know, 40 years on or more, it's come full circle. But that day, it was fascinating. And then Dennis suggested that I write an essay on black holes for a university prize. And I did. And I won the prize. Oh, yay! Yes. Still the youngest one in the room. <laughs> Still the youngest one in the room. But it was fascinating because I'd been sort of experiencing many different realms of reality since I was very young. And when I went to Oxford, the whole point really was to try and understand how my experiences in a much bigger understanding of reality sort of linked into what we call the physical world. And what I found at Oxford is actually, although the teaching was world class, it was very much of the paradigm that was then, which was 20th century science, of course. But I realised very soon that the scientific revolution of the 20th century was incomplete. And that was really validated for me in Oxford, because what I realised, even though I had such amazing opportunities, is that neither quantum physics nor relativity theory, those two twin pillars of 20th century science, not only did they seem incompatible, but they just didn't address the deeper nature of consciousness. And at the time, there was absolutely or virtually no understanding of the significance that we've now come to realise information plays. So it was wonderful. And as I say, black holes are a really important aspect of us understanding now. Um, and it got me 25 quid because I, I won the prize. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm thinking as you're talking about black holes and what we now know, we think of, as we look up in our local universe, mm. Um, as space is being empty, mm-hmm. and because we only recognize light, you know, and the planets and the stars sure. and things like that, and then when you now we we're discovering that it is filled, it is packed with energy and packed with uh, things that, as you say, black holes sure. that we can't even see. Sure. And so, does this have something to do with the idea that all things are connected? That we we are really not separated by this great empty space. I, I think it's more profound than that. Um, this understanding of this interconnectedness has been sort of creeping up into science um, more and more visibly over the last few years. But the reality of it is that for quantum theory, for quantum mechanics to work at all, there was a, a Northern Ireland uh, scientist called uh, uh, John Stuart Bell who said basically everything has to be interconnected at a non-local, in other words, beyond the sort of the the limitations of the signalling of light, which has a limited speed limit. You know, nothing can go faster than the speed of light within space-time. But what he showed was mathematically that for quantum mechanics to work at all, our universe has to exist as a unified entity non-locally connected. In other words, it has to know itself all the time. 
But within space-time, there is this still causality. So it's how do you bring those two together? And what I've been able to do in the, in the cosmic hologram, but what science is now able to do is to show how that works. And when you do do it from this perspective, a profound, not just profound interconnectedness, is deeper than that. It's saying that instead of the appearance of separation uh, and the duality of how perhaps immaterial mind might emerge from our material brains, we have to go a much deeper dive than that, to go beyond energy and matter, to go beyond space-time, and to realise that they emerge as the appearance of our universe from this deeper perspective that is consciousness. So are you saying instead of going from that idea of either or, this either or, it's either this way, relativity or quantum over here, either or, you're saying that there's a bigger picture that's both and and a bigger picture. Yes. Is that... Very much. And that bigger picture enables their seeming incompatibility to be resolved and at the same time, it doesn't just do that. It actually sets that bigger picture as a realization that instead of mind somehow arising from matter, that literally mind is matter, matter is mind. And consciousness isn't something we have. It literally is what we and the whole world are. And of course, some of those quantum physicists like Max Planck and others got this. They got this a 100 years ago. Um, mystics have got it throughout the, the millennia. Ancient sages intuited and got it. People are actually talking black holes. John Archibald Wheeler, one of my heroes, who came up with the term black hole, got it. He said it from bit. In other words, all we call the itness of physical reality is made up of the bitness of universal information. I know in your book you quote um, Max, Max Planck, who's you know, like a, a pillar of, of physics. And he's talking about, um, I, he says that I regard consciousness as fundamental. Yes. I regard matter as derivative yes. of, from consciousness. And so when you say <laughs> mind is matter, oh, wait a minute. Uh, some of us were going to go, wait a minute, you can't touch, feel, you know, hear, taste, uh, mind. So we think of matter as something very solid. So how do we hold that if you say mind is matter or consciousness is fundamental and derivative of matter? Well, as as you just quoted Max Planck and many, many others, you know, understood that this is exactly the case. The appearance of physical reality seems pretty solid. We're sitting it at does, a desk. Definitely. You know, I, I sort of give you a hug and it's it's lovely and it's it's very solid. But the thing is, we know as as physicists, when we drill down to subatomic levels, what is left is essentially 99.9999999999999% no thingness. And what remains isn't like tiniest of billiard balls, it's excitations in fields of influence and relationships and dynamism. But not only is what we call physical reality incredibly ephemeral. The only reason we don't go through the floor we're standing or sitting on is the spin of those subatomic excitations work in such a way that they snag with each other. 
so they don't pass through each other. They they work in such a way that they relate in so such a way. So they're in a relationship. They're in a relationship, and that relationship gives that appearance of separation. But the the other side of it is not only is what we call physical entities incredibly ephemeral, but that information exactly the same digitized one zeros information that's the basis of all our technologies that is is working as we record this this program you know our voices are being converted into digitized bits and then reassembled into voices it's all information the information for example you talk about it seems very real but have you ever had a virtual reality experience yes you yes. can taste it, you can see it, you can feel it. People get vertigo because they're in a VR that stands on the edge of a cliff. You know, it's as real as what we call true reality. Our holograms, we're getting to points now where we can create acoustic holograms and we can create holograms that you can actually touch as well as a walk around and, and appear to. So all of that information that creates virtual realities, that creates holograms, that's all the basis of our technologies, is exactly the same as the universal information that's as real as anything we call physical reality. Well, we'll go into that in more detail in just one moment. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Dr. Jude Curavan. She spells her last name C-U-R-R-I-V-A-N, Jude Caravan and her website, if you want to know more information, is wholeworld-view.org, wholeworld-view.org, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website. She's the author of The Cosmic Hologram, Information at the Center of Creation. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Jude Curavan, and she is the author of The Cosmic Hologram, Information at the Center of Creation. I want to mention, too, that she spells throughout the book and even in the title of the book, Information, I-N-Formation at the Center of Creation, In-Formation. It really opens up that word, just like information. So we're talking about... When you say information, mm -hmm. you're talking about more than data. And, and I, I quote sure. you as saying, uh, everything we call physical reality is literally made up of information. Mm -hmm. So I'd love for you to expand on that. 
Okay. Well, before the break, we talked about how ephemeral what we call physical reality is. You know, when we get down, we drill down to subatomic entities like electrons and quarks. They're not tiny billiard balls. They're actually incredible will-of-the-wisp uh, excitations in fields of, of, of energy. When information was starting to be needed to be understood, you know, the beginning of the computer age and the telecommunications age, what is information? And, and people started to look at it in a different way rather than just data. They started looking at it a different way. And they started to understand theoretically that information has physical properties. So example, if you store one bit of information, it actually um, has work associated with it. It has temperature associated with it, which are physical attributes. Yeah. So there are a number of theoretical um, physicists, people like Leo Szilard and Rolf Landauer, who got that information is physical and they showed theoretically what that would mean. But the real key one was the understanding by IBM telecommunications expert Claude Shannon, who was trying to understand how much information you can squirt down a cable, because yeah, that had a lot of commercial importance. And he discovered that it equated to Ludwig Boltzmann's equation for the thermodynamic entropy of a gas, exactly the same information. But what's been more recently understood is instead of just the, the ability to, to, to contain information in terms of communications, as Vladko Vedral, who's the quantum physicist at Oxford, has understood, it's actually the informational content of a system. So instead of thinking of entropy as order and disorder, or even as microstates in a system, it's now been realised when we talk about the entropy of a system, it's its informational content. Well, help us to understand the the word entropy. Right. So this is going to be a big word. I, in the it next is a few. big word. It's going to be a big word in yeah. the next few years. Okay, so I, that's why I want to slow it down a little bit for us. <laughs> Let's because, land uh, it. Let's yeah, land it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Land. Oh, good. Land. <laughs> land the word uh, entropy. Okay. Well, most folks who've um, studied science or engineering tend to consider entropy as something about the um, move from an order in a system to a disorder. So, for example, if I've got this, this glass of water and it's sitting on the edge of this table and it's just sitting there, it's quite ordered, I then knock it over. The water goes everywhere, the glass breaks, it goes to disorder. But actually, that isn't quite what happens. It is, but at a deeper level... This, the number of microstates, the relationships between all the tiny states of water and glass when that glass is sitting on the table is at a level and that level is its entropy sitting there. When I knock it over and it goes everywhere, think of all that water then interconnecting with the carpet, with the splashed on the walls. The number of microstates it exhibits is more. So it becomes more complex. It becomes more complex. So instead of thinking order to disorder, think simplicity to complexity. And think of simplicity to complexity as an increase in the informational content. Now, we're thinking of a glass in a room, but think of the whole universe as a closed system. OK, so our whole universe, when it began 13.8 billion years ago, we talk about the Big Bang. 
wasn't big, wasn't a bang. It was tiny, but it was incredibly, it was as simple as it could be, but no simpler. It was just a phrase that got caught on, huh? Yeah. But and and Fred Hoyle did it because he, yeah. he wanted to, he didn't believe in it basically, and he just wanted to, to diss it, but it caught on. But what we now realise is that beginning was incredibly simple. It was incredibly fine-tuned. So instead of a big bang, it was a big breath as time flowed and space expanded. So what we so had... So it was like the yeah. glass, the yes. water the water yeah. in the glass yeah. before it got... And then it and got then, kicked off the table. <laughs> <laughs> but instead of some idiot like me kicking off the table, mm-hmm. our universe expanded in this incredibly interrelated, informed way so that the laws of physics, the instructions, if you like, of information that enable our universe to exist and evolve are so beautifully set up that our universe literally was able not just to exist, but literally to be able to evolve from that level of simplicity to ever greater complexity, ever greater informational content. So the the principles didn't change? No. But they became more complex. They became more complex. What happens when, uh, and I think that we can feel this in our world today, that uh, the complexity reaches such a level that we would call it chaotic. There's no longer what we would call coherence. We can feel this politically and economically and socially and in our world today. So what what does all of this have to do with where we are now? Well, think of our entire universe and maybe think of it as simply as we can do. It isn't quite the geometry, but think of it as a balloon. Okay. So right from that first moment of the big breath, 13.8 billion years ago. Think of space expanding as the big breath, rather like blowing up a balloon. Yeah. And time flows within space time. So that's the whole beauty about entropy. It increases through time. So within what we call our space time of our universe, time flows, space expands. What that means is that in every moment and we can talk about the moment because we've got to talk about the Planck scale. Every tiny moment, our universe has more informational content than the most moment before because it's a closed system. So we need to think of our entire universe. Wait, say that again. Our universe is a closed system. Think of it like a balloon. So the surface of the balloon is the edges of our universe. Yeah. So all that's within that balloon, all the energy matter is information expressed as energy matter and conserved. But as the balloon expands, as time flows, our universe evolves ever greater complexity within it. So yesterday, our universe had less informational content than it has today, than it will have tomorrow through the whole of its cycle of life. But we're talking because about because there are more connections happening because there is more surface. There's more. In- think of it as the surface area of that balloon, and think of the surface area of the balloon. This is where black holes come into it. It was understood because people were saying, "Well, okay, we have a star. We have a big star. That star comes to the end of its life, and then it it, it doesn't all explode. It just shrinks inwards, and the 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 the, the power of its gravity is so." great that it shrinks below what's called its event horizon, where even light 
can't escape. And that's why it becomes a black hole. It looks black because no light's escaping from it. But the question was asked quite naturally, well, what happens to all that information that describes the star? And it was realised that actually it is held on the surface area of that event horizon. Now, that sounds weird because if you think about it, if you've got this glass of water, right, go back to the glass of water again, um, that we'd think that the information within that glass is proportional to the volume of water or the volume of the glass. So if we increase the size of the glass and the volume of the water, the, the information increases proportionally to that three-dimensional volume. Well, that's not what happens with a black hole. If you've got a black hole, it's, it's proportional to its surface area, okay, which is like a hologram. Because in a hologram, what you do is you bathe an object in light. You have a, a beam of light, you spit it. One beam goes on, the other beam bathes that object in light, picks up all sorts of information about it, comes back, combines with the original beam. And what's created is a pattern of information about that glass. But it's on a two-dimensional surface. You well, then, we can't see a black hole. Light doesn't well, penetrate. But it's still spherical. So if you were in a oh. space state, if you were in a spaceship, you could actually go around the black hole because mm -hmm. it's the shape of the star. Okay. It's just that it looks black because it's so powerfully gravitational that the light can't escape. I'm just thinking about recently they've discovered, I mean recently, mm -hmm. they've been able to see neutron uh, stars neutron stars merging, merging. Yes, they beautiful. actually physically recorded it in, in other they, they other picked up the gravitational waves but they've also been able to pick up a visual of it it's actually quite extraordinary and that is isn't that i mean that is yeah. a, an extraordinary event yeah, for us it isn't is. it is but that it's, going it, to but it's it's the hors d'oeuvre this ah. is the main course. <laughs> okay. All right. Not to get distracted by it, huh? Okay. These are, this is the canapes. Yeah. Okay. This is the canapes. Do not be distracted by it. Okay. But it is, it's extraordinary. But just to go back to this point about a hologram. So what happens then? All the information of a three-dimensional object is captured and then um, displayed on a two-dimensional surface. The hologram's created when then you shine another beam of light through it and that three, the appearance of that 3D object comes, you know, is created. That's the hologram. The point is that all the information of that three appearance of 3Dness of the hologram is held on the two-dimensional surface of information you've picked up. But why is this important for us? Because cosmologists think our entire universe is a hologram. So when we talk about the expansion of space, first of all, what we're saying is, is when people go back to black holes for a second, trying to understand what happened to all of the information of that star, realizing that it was actually all held on that two-dimensional surface of the black hole. So it increased not proportionally to the volume of the black hole, but to the surface area of it, exactly like a hologram. They expanded that understanding to our whole universe and basically said that our whole universe is essentially a giant cosmic hologram. What they also realised is what level of information is held on the surface area of a black hole. And a brilliant Israeli physicist called Jacob Bekenstein mathematically proved that if you think of 
a, the surface area of a black hole covered in tiny little uh, triangles. Yeah, so the entire surface area is covered in these minute triangles. And there's one digital bit of information held within each of those triangles that measures the informational content of the black hole. So if we think about the boundary of space with these tiny triangular areas, with each one holding one digitized bit of information about the whole universe, then as space expands, that this is what we call the pixelation of space-time. Okay, we, <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm here with Dr. Jude Caravan, and she is the author of The Cosmic Hologram, Information at the Center of Creation. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Jude Caravan, and she is the author of The Cosmic Hologram, Information at the Center of Creation. To know more about her work, you can go to her website, wholeworld-view.org. Jude, you just mentioned the word pixelation, <laughs> and, and, and earlier you mentioned Planck's, uh, the, the physicist, his yes. scale. Yes. And, and there's a formula that he has for scale. That formula has come forward now in, in a new way, right? Uh, big time. So, Absolutely so big time. So talk about why the pixelation is important. Okay. Well, physicists realize that when we, when we combine all the forces in the universe, a scale, a natural scale, just falls out. And it's a scale of length and, and, uh, and time and mass and temperature. But it's the, it's the length and the time that we really need to focus on. Because what it's been realized is that when I talked about those little triangles, you know, that, that cover the boundary of our universe, they are composed at that Planck scale. So literally, they are the pixelation. I don't know about you, but I remember when um, we had a television that when, you know, you could go closer and closer to it and you could actually see the tiny little pixels yeah, working with it. Yeah, the little dots. The little dots, exactly. And so what this is, is the pixelation of space-time. And we are talking about absolutely minute. So the Planck scale in terms of the length, which is the size of this, these little triangles, is 10 to the minus 35 meters. Now, to give you an, a, an understanding of that, that's as tiny as to the scale of a, an atomic nucleus is an atomic nucleus is to the scale of the entire universe. It's that tiny. But not just that, as our universe exists and evolves through time, the Planck scale of time is 10 to the minus 44 seconds. Now, when you think that from the first moment of the big breath, 13.8 billion years ago till now, that's the equivalent of 10 to the 17 seconds. Are you saying that time has changed? No, I'm saying that this pixelation scale of space-time has both a size in terms of space 
and a duration in terms because of time. Because it's expanding. Yes, and time is flowing. So that's what I mean by saying that in every moment, the universe has more information because time is flowing and space is expanding. You know, when you blow a balloon up, if we were to just put little triangles and write little triangles on the surface, as the surface area of a balloon grows, those triangles get bigger. Well, that doesn't happen in our universe. What happens is there's just more and more and more and more of those plant units coming into being. And each one of them is holding one bit of information. So if it, I'm... All right, I'm thinking of a movie right now. Right, okay. All right, I'm thinking of the movie. Um, the movie is Love Actually. And at the end of it, yeah. it shows a, a picture of people meeting in an airport. And you just see two people meeting. Yeah. And then it adds the next people and the next people. And it starts to telescope back. Yes. Back until the whole screen of the big theater is filled with all of these pictures of all of these people meeting in an airport. Is that kind of what you're talking about? It, it sort of is. What it's saying is that think of our universe almost like a universe soul. It, it's a, it's a, a living entity. It's an intelligent entity. It was born 13.8 billion years ago. It exists and it evolves. It's moved from simplicity to complexity. And... Because it is unified, it is literally a cosmic hologram that, as the ancients said, the whole is within each pixelation and within each pixelation, you know, and, and, and so the so whole is in the one, the one is like in the a, whole. It's more a kaleidoscope. <laughs> it's, you can, you can, yeah, you can say that. The thing is, it, it's so profoundly unified and yet it's diversified it's differentiated and yet it's alive too yes totally alive yes and I mean, intelligent be, yes and its intelligence is growing just as yesterday we had less informational content in our lives than we do now you know we've had 24 hours to experience our universe has had 24 hours to experience since yesterday our entire universe so you know it, because of that, we it, it it's complexity. It evolves, and it doesn't mean that space itself gets more you know complex. It doesn't. It means that right from the beginning, when all there really was in our universe thirteen point eight billion years ago, was some hydrogen, a little bit of helium, a little bit of lithium. But then stars began to form. And when stars go through their life cycle, they start to build heavier elements. I mean, one of the things that you were mentioning earlier, two merging neutron stars, it is so powerful that it creates gold and platinum. Mm -hmm. It is so powerful. You know, if you're wearing a gold ring, your gold ring was born in a, in a neutron star. Mm. Is that wonderful to I think know, of or that? think of, I've heard that we are made of stardust. We are 13.8 billion years old because all <laughs> the energy and matter in our universe from the very beginning to its very end is, is exactly the same. Energy and matter are conserved within our entire universe. They just change form. So that literally everything that makes us up, it wasn't carbon then or oxygen, but, but it was there. And from that incredible, simple and ordered and fine-tuned beginning, those laws of physics, those algorithms of information, those instructions have enabled our universe to exist and evolve to this point and beyond. 
Well, going back to something that you said very early that just popped out at me, just the three words you said that are, are important are these fields of influence. Yeah. And and so what I'm hearing you say as as it expands, there also is there an expansion of can we influence things? Of where is where is where is the influence, and how is that being affected? Well, we're essentially microcosmic co-creators of the realities of our universe. I mean, one of the things that I wanted to show in the book was way beyond the physics and the biology, but to show that the cosmic hologram, its signature of informed patternings, dynamic relational patterns, they play out through all of what we call the natural world, but they play out through all our behaviors and relationships on our everyday lives. The same patterns that play out in, in say, an ecosystem in the Amazon plays out throughout the internet. The same patterns that play out in, in other natural systems play out in the way we use mobile phones. I mean, there have been analyses of thousands of phone calls from thousands of anonymized users showing that despite everybody's different lifestyles and where they are and where they're going to, the same patterns, what's called fractal patterns, play out in all our collective decisions. Earthquakes, give you an example. There isn't such a thing as an average earthquake. What's been realized over many, many years is if you plot all earthquakes in terms of their destructive power and their frequency, you don't get a peak of an average, you get a straight line. And all that straight line shows is that an earthquake that's twice the power is four times less likely to happen. Simple as that. So there's a relationship between the power, the destructive power and frequency of earthquakes. A research called Lewis Richardson at the end of the Second World War plotted hundreds of human conflicts and showed the destructive power in terms of the number of deaths and the frequency and came up with exactly the same relationship as for earthquakes. More recently, a researcher called Neil Johnson and his team at the University of Miami have done it with insurgencies in Iraq and Afghanistan and found the same relationship. So, let me ask you this question because you, you brought up in, in your book something called uh, the Red Queen uh, Dilemma. Or, yes. You know, the yes. Red Queen. What was it? The Red Queen. It's from Lewis Carroll. And basically, you just run to stand still because what you get, if you get a progression of events such as insurgencies, the relationship between them means that it, it's almost like tit for tat. You do something, the enemy does something. You do something, the enemy does something. Infinitum. Infinitum. You just run to stand still. You just run to stand still. You never resolve it. You never resolve it. And that seems to be where we are right now in many cases. Well, absolutely, because what what I've shown in the book and what you know, research across all these fields show is all that we call physical reality, this informed and holographic cosmic hologram we call our universe arises from deeper non-physical patterns of information and intention. So when I talk about conflicts playing out in the same way as earthquakes, that comes from an attractor of behavioral choices. And just as behavioral choices drive us to conflicts, we can choose to create a different attractor based on peace 
we can come together. And instead of an attractor that plays out all of the, you know, the fear-based behaviours that we, we play out, we can strengthen and empower and choose to move towards positive attractors that, you know, that their boundaries are peace and love. They're love-based instead of fear-based. I can give you an example of that, a current example of that, that we're going through right now in this very moment here in this area. Uh, I live in Santa Rosa, mm-hmm. California, and we have just had a devastating fire. Yeah, 6,000 homes and businesses have burnt to the ground. Yeah, I mean, in a very, That's- very small area and it's just disrupted everything and what i've noticed as a response in this particular area has been what you say that love response Mm -hmm. and support response the support has been incredible and all of us are thinking Wow, it takes a disaster for us to come together exactly. like this. You yeah. know, how do we sustain this without the disaster? And and isn't that the question? It is, and it is consciousness. And what are our conscious choices as microcosmic co-creators of the realities of our universe? You know, I, I, I balk at saying we are the universe. The universe is a wonderful macrocosm of intelligence and consciousness. We're its microcosmic co-creators. So where we have these choices of fear and love, we have one attractor based in fear, based in the myth of separation, because it is the myth of separation. And, you know, I'm here to say the myth of separation is dead. Separation does not exist. Reality is real. Separation is illusory. So let's get real people and let's start to understand that it's that myth of separation, that that dis-ease of our collective perception that's driven our dysfunctional behaviours that have brought us to this point of potential breakdown. The point is that we, by being here and now at this unsustainable moment, we also have a choice break down or break through. So we can break through to this these higher level, coherent, love-based attractors. But what happens when a system is ready to shift? It's called bifurcation. And what it does, it does something called flickering. Ah, flickering. Let's get to flickering <laughs> in just one moment. I'm here with Dr. Jude Curvan, and she's the author of The Cosmic Hologram, information at the center of creation. She spells her last name C-U-R-R-I-V-A-N. And she, her website is wholeworld-view.org. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Dr. Jude Curavan, and she's the author of The Cosmic Hologram, Information at the Center of Creation. And we're just getting to the point of you're talking about the flicker and or the wobble. <laughs> the wobble. <laughs> so what what tell us about the flicker and what the importance of that? Well, I mean, we've probably all flickered in our lives. <laughs> in the sense that if we're in a, a if we're in a particular behavior, a belief system, yeah, we believe something about ourselves and others and the world, whether it's real or not. Yeah. But we act from that. So we play out within our behavior. Uh, the essential, the the attractor boundaries of of what it means when we think of everybody being separate from us. And as we go on our own journey, perhaps our own spiritual journey, our own journey of insight, we start to perhaps understand, experience that actually things are more interconnected than we thought. But then we have a bad day. Okay, so we pull back into the old way of, of perceiving the old attractor. And then we have a lovely meditation and mm-hmm. we move into this beautiful understanding and experience of the oneness. Yeah. And then we pull back because we've had another, you know, terrible whatever, whatever. That's flickering. And we're doing that as a collective psyche. You know, we've experienced the myth of separation. We've experienced the myth that somehow, but we didn't know how mind arises from matter and somehow, but we weren't sure that consciousness somehow evolves. We're now waking up to the reality that our reality is unified and diverse and differentiated, but is ultimately unified. So are you saying that that we're the possibility of us living that not as just a momentary exactly moment thing, but but really as a, a lived, a lived, lived experience, embodied experience, exactly that, and that is the flickering because more and more people are beginning to understand and experience and progressively embody this unity awareness, and the beauty of it is that it's not about a grey loop where you know it's all homogenous and we're all the same. Absolutely not. A healthy ecosystem is the most varied, the most abundant, and yet it is whole. And what and diverse. And diverse. Mm-hmm. So what I'm talking about very much is that when we begin to understand, experience, embody unity awareness of unified reality, we can empower and value the uniqueness of every me and value and celebrate the diversity of the we and bring together the collective genius of the we and the bigger we by not just this isn't just humanity of course this is also healing our relationship with mother earth healing our relationship with the whole cosmos and this to me is is literally our co- potential for conscious evolution and this is the threshold so we flicker from this old unsustainable paradigm of separation and the fear-based behaviours that come from it, and we move to this new attractor, this new paradigm, this new awareness that mind is matter and consciousness isn't something we have. It's literally what we and the whole world are. And then value that, celebrate that. So what, what I hear you saying is that we're moving, like, if we move into this belief system or, or the, a new awareness. I was going to say, it's not a it's, belief system it, it, so okay. much because it really is an awareness because everything, it's still a work in progress. Any, any, I think, human perception is a work in progress. But this is a work in progress that we talked about, you know, 20th century science being bigger. This is 
valuing that, but the way that it, we can do it, it actually reconciles all of that, but it's far more than a scientific revolution. It literally is a revolution of consciousness, of awareness. Okay, that reminds me. All right, so to give an example, going back, like we may be at a, at a, a, a tipping point yeah. in our, our whole awareness and whole paradigm. If you go back to the time of Galileo, Copernicus, yeah. and we and they showed that we are that the earth is not the center of the universe and the sun wasn't revolving around <laughs> the earth, but 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 the earth was revolving around the yeah. sun and so forth and so on. Yeah. And then it took uh some decades after that for the uh uh, age of enlightenment yeah. to come into and everything changed yeah, then. Absolutely. So are you saying that here we we are in that same moment of time, so to speak, mm. that that kind of paradigm shift is taking place and maybe needs to take place much faster than it did I, <laughs> than it came on in the Absolutely. age of enlightenment. I feel okay. it will and I feel it's actually much more profound than even the age of enlightenment. Wonderful yes. that that was. And I feel it's much more I think it's much more than the 20th century scientific revolution because this is a revolution that isn't just about, you know, what's out there in the universe or what's in the very small or very this is how we live our lives. This is how every day we choose to relate with so each other. So this is from the inside this out. This is inside out, outside in, and it's reconciling it. It's showing that the inside is the outside, the outside is the inside, that we are unique microcosmic co-creators, and yet we are part of the ultimate unified reality of our universe. And we are purposeful, and we have meaning, and we have an incredible future if we can come together and instead of falling into fear, leap into love. And that is the opportunity I feel we have now. And what you're also saying is that we are absolutely co-creators oh, yeah. in this whole play. Absolutely. I mean, I'm not saying, that, you know, the universe is, is a macrocosmic intelligence. We are microcosmic intelligences, but we have access to its wholeness. We have access to its its deep wisdom. It's it's about, you know, listening. Because one of the things that I'm feeling is really important now, and you mentioned the fires and all of it, we need to listen to the wisdom of Gaia. We need to listen to the wisdom of Mother Earth. And, you know, we've been so human-centric and so separated um, from ourselves, from each other, from our Mother Earth for, for, for quite a while now. This is about reconciliation and resolution at every level, you know, physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual. And when you talk about fear and separation, mm. and on the other end of that spectrum is, is love, I think of love is, is the glue. <laughs> Love's of the, the glue, of absolutely. The universe. Yes. Can you speak to that? Well, when we consider our universe is a unit, exists and evolves as a unified, coherent entity. I'm not talking sentimentalized love, but that love is that profound underpinning attraction. attraction of unity. And, you know, look at a sunset, look at a star, look at a baby. You know, that love is, is innate. It's innate. It's only when we misunderstand and go into that illusion of separation that we forget. And then when we forget, we start to feel separate, we start to feel lonely, we start to feel threatened, we start to feel afraid, and then we behave from that place of appearance of separation. So reality is real, but separation is not. 
<laughs> so um, you talk about the um, the co-creative principles, and yeah. I would just love in these last few minutes if there's something that you'd like to say about these principles that would be helpful to us in these times. Well, thank you, Justine. I, I, I've, some years ago, because I've written about them before in a number of other books, but I, I've understood eight, and, and eight's a great number. You know, eight is is the bridge between our, our personalized, if you like, chakra system and, and the universal um, chakra system. It's in spiral dynamics. It's the eighth level of, of what is talked about at this time and this holographic movement forward. But as these eight principles, it's an octave of music, of course, so it's a doubling in frequency. But these eight principles are principles of both physics and metaphysics. So they're principles of consciousness. So they're things about, you know, resonance and coherence and change and very, very simple. But if we work with them, if someone works with them and understands them, they basically can align themselves with the flow of our universe. So rather than fight it or be unconscious of it, these are co-creative principles that apply throughout our entire universe and apply from that trans-physical perspective where consciousness informs and co-creates reality. So the choice is really, are we unconscious microcosmic co-creators or are we conscious co-creators. And what these principles, which I write about in the book, it's how we can become ever more conscious co-creators of our choices and to help us make those choices from love rather than from fear. Every day. Every day. So we have that opportunity every single, in every little microcosmic yeah. action we take yeah. is what you're saying. You're encouraging us to to know each one. Uh, Here's a choice point. Here's a choice point. Yeah. Here's a choice point. Yeah. How, how you think. Do you offer a kind word to someone or just, you know, ignore them? Do you give someone a hug? Do you smile at a stranger? You know, these, aren't, these don't need to be big, big, big things. You don't know if when you smile at that stranger, that stranger could have been feeling suicidal that day. You just smile at I've them. heard stories like that. And their lives are saved, are, are changed, are transformed. You know, it's it, the, the whole point is that complex systems like our collective psyche are what's called non-linear. A tiny little cause can have a major consequence. And sometimes a, what appears to be a very big cause can just fizzle away. So coming from the heart, coming from love, all day, every day. And don't beat ourselves up when we go, we act grumpy. I mean, you know, heavens. <laughs> I could be Mrs. Grumpy with the best. But not to give ourselves a hard time. But just when we catch ourselves doing something unkind, just bring ourselves back. Just take a breath. Take a breath. That's <laughs> such a hopeful vision, uh, Jude. Thank you so much for being with us today. We, we, we have so much more to cover, but, but we'll have to kind of leave it with that hopeful vision. I've been here with Dr. Jude Curavan, and she's the author of The Cosmic Hologram, Information at the Center of Creation. If you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, wholeworld-view.org. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3629.
New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. This program was recorded at Strawberry Hill Productions, a full-service podcast production studio in Novato, California. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions, whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.